0: Last week's guest was Toby Cosgrove from the Cleveland Clinic. What are we going to do for an encore?
1: Well, how about Dr. Chris Chen, the CEO of ChenMed, taking care of some of the sickest patients in America at half the cost.
0: Sick. Welcome to care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams,
1: president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics.
0: John, you made a habit of inviting some prominent physicians to CareTalk lately. Last week, we were talking to Toby Cosgrove from the Cleveland Clinic. So how are you going to top that?
1: Well, I, I don't think we could top him with legacy, but perhaps we will challenge him with promise. We've got Chris Chen, the CEO of ChenMed, to talk about a little bit about his experiences with the healthcare system and how I think we all would like to see it redesigned and some some ideas. I mean, this is a this is a this is a really auspicious time. So welcome, Chris. Hey guys,
2: how you doing? John, David, good to be here. So I was I was reading your blog,
0: and uh, you were reflecting on your own experience, recent experience, and and you wrote a blog about preventing hospitalizations to cure the inpatient experience. What what are you talking
2: about? <laughs> uh, at the end of uh, June, beginning of July. Uh, I had the experience uh, or the opportunity to experience what it is to be in the ICU. I, I got COVID and, and I and I don't meet any of the statistics. Right. So, um, you, you know, I don't have heart disease. I don't have diabetes. Um, I'm not overweight. In fact, the morning that I came down with COVID. Don't brag. Stop. <laughs> I, don't, I go to a, I was talking to my assistant and I said, oh, my gosh, COVID has been great. For my training, I have been like training like crazy. Uh, and I am in like tip top triathlon race shape. Unfortunately, I don't have any triathlons that I'm allowed to go and participate in. And of course, you know, uh, haughtiness before the fall. Um, that night, uh, I, 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 I came down with COVID fevers up to 102, 103. And then a week later, I found myself in the ICU for about a week. Um, and I learned a lot. Um, I learned four things. Number one, uh, I realized that even though the doctors that were on board and the people that were on board are just absolutely spectacular. They are just wonderful, wonderful people. The system is very disjointed. The right hand does not know what the left hand is doing. There was nobody there accountable for the entire patient, which was me at the time. And so my brother had to step in and be my sort of Chen Med PCP <laughs> and to make sure that everybody was working together um, and that everybody was working together in a, for a line goal and making sure all the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed, and that we're not crossing, you know, wires here. So that's the first thing that I noticed. It was uh, shocking to me to really experience that. The second thing that I noticed is the amount of suffering that occurs in an intensive care environment. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a cardiologist by training um, and, uh, you know, have a pretty deep love for intensive and critical care. Um, very easy for me to order things, very hard to actually experience those things. Um, and then being in, in the hospital with COVID is even worse because you're in solitary confinement. So it's not like you have family that can help you get through it. Um, you know, trying to reach out to your family and, and a few friends on FaceTime is just not going to cut it when you're not able to breathe and you're not sure if you're going to live or die. So, uh, so that's pretty um, you know, a pretty horrific thing. And that led me to believe, "Oh my gosh, we need to figure out a way for patients to pre- for, to prevent patients from getting to this point." And we can't prevent 100% of them, but shoot, if we could prevent prevent 70% of them, just imagine the amount of suffering that we would be saving that you can't do anything about. It's just, no matter how nice the nurses are, no matter how nice the doctors are, no no matter how fluffy your pillow is or soft your pillow is, it's just suffering. I mean, you're basically essentially almost like you're tied down by wires. You're just drowning in your own sweat. You you, you can't move. Um, You're getting woken up in all hours, getting poted and prodded. You can't breathe. The things are beeping left and right. There's tremendous uncertainty whether you're gonna live or die. Um, So there's a lot of fear. Um, that goes along with it. And and, and unfortunately, it, it, you're, you're also scared because your right hand does not necessarily know what the left hand is doing.
1: So Chris, on, on that, I want to poke on that because it sounds like there's a lot of care but not enough humanity in our, in our system. And what could, what could we do to inject? One of the things we talk about a lot of care centrics is how do we just humanize the deep vulnerability that everyone who calls, anyone who contacts us in any way is vulnerable and feels at the whim of the system of their illness. How do we inject more humanity? Because there's a lot of. I mean, every patient is scared.
2: Well, you know, this is one of the things that Chemed that we focus very deeply on, which is on culture, right? And um, and and it's not enough just to find mission-driven people. You have to give people a mission-driven system.
1: Yeah. What does that mission-driven system mean to you? Like, how do you, what does that mean? How do you personalize that at GenMed?
2: You know, uh, there, there's only, you, you, when people go to the intensive care unit, there's really only so much love that you can give them. <laughs> okay. You know, you, you you can't have somebody like, you know, stroking your head, telling you it's going to be all right when you're in the ICU and you can't breathe and you're on all these machines and, and you're, and you, and you got things in your arteries and in your veins and, and it, it's not a good place to be. Okay. So, They do the best that you can. But if you really want to find out the best place to apply love, it's before they get to that intensive care unit. you got to figure out where to apply the right, uh, you know, where to apply apply the right attention. And so in in our organization, uh, you know, our values are love, accountability, and passion. And we talk about applying tremendous love with with deep passion prior to these catastrophic events.
1: So why isn't, why isn't there more love and compassion? I mean, what 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 are we missing in in the system? Because that's a that's one of the deep connections we try to make with our patients at CareCentrics. But it, it feels like it's a game changer for when you connect to a patient and their family and their caregiver, and there's that human touch. How do we inject that more into the rest of healthcare?
2: So I think you need three things. First thing is you got to align the incentives, right? There's 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 very little incentive for folks to develop systems that are built on prevention and being sort of human prior to bad things occurring, okay? To prevent bad things from occurring, so you you got to align the incentives. The second thing is you have to select for the right people with the right personalities. Um, one of the things that we do at ChenMed is we you know we psychologically profile every single person. That interviews right. So you got to look at personality, and you got to make sure that they're the, that they're the kind of person that's actually able to deliver a particular result. In healthcare today, we give trophies for trying. That means if you show up and you give me effort, you you, you win. You get paid, right? A surgeon shows up and gives their effort in an, in an operating room. Um, they they get paid. The Hospital gets paid. Um, we believe that we're looking for people that. Are don't get trophies for trying or don't want to be get paid for trying. We want to look for people who want to be rewarded for great results. And in our world, great results is you can actually reduce, you know, hospitalization rates, as an example. And so you have to have the right incentives. You have to have the right people. And you got to give those people the right tools. And that's where the, the technology and the training come in, right? So one crazy thing that we do that it, it, it's a little controversial the way we, we talk about it, but we I might as well just come out with it. Once we've selected for that, for that right physician, and, and we believe only 50% of physicians today have the right personality to be accountable for an outcome. I know that's shocking. Okay, But once we've selected for the right physician, we actually put them through a nine-month training course where we have to sort of deprogram them from fee-for-service medicine. Because their medical school, which is predominantly taught by professors that work in a hospital system that, that, that pays for RVUs, is going to be trained in a fee for service system and trained to optimize a fee for service system. So we actually have to deprogram that fee for service mentality, um, the lack of coordination, the lack of attention on prevention, um, and actually, and then retrain those physicians in terms of how to think about the patient as a whole. So, Chris, maybe as background, you could talk a little bit,
1: introduce us to a little bit about the founding of ChenMed, you know, which your family has led and to now to built an institution of pretty big scale in terms of taking care of the most complicated patients in America. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about the origin story of the organization you're now leading. Sure.
2: You know, it's interesting. We um, have a pretty unique background uh, in terms of our family. Uh, we are a rare, or you know, group of people. Who uh, have experienced true poverty? Um, we first moved to Miami as a family. At least for the first decade of my life, we found ourselves, um, you know, homeless for a period of time, uh, living on food stamps and uh, living off of Medicaid. And so we really uh, had an opportunity to just really taste what that world feels like. And so when my dad finally finished his training and his schooling, um, he found a deep mission to go and take care of people who are underserved. Uh, being in South Florida during that time, where risk groups were sort of popping up, mostly you know Southern California was already doing it, uh, Southern Texas was just starting it, and of course Florida as well. And, and so when my dad uh, was uh, you know learning about all these different healthcare models that were sprouting up, and we're talking about the early '90s here, um, he was particularly interested in this risk model concept. And, and in those days. Um, the way that risk was managed, which was unbeknownst to my father, um, was that you actually optimized your risk by selecting the right patients, right? So what you would do is you would um, take really good care of really healthy people. And then your sicker people that were in your pool, you found ways to get rid of them. You know, you built them in on three-story walk-ups.
1: Uh, yeah, and we're talking literally that this is the Medicare Advantage population, and there literally were marketers who would require people to walk up a couple of sets of stairs to see whether they wanted to actually enroll in the plans. It's not—it's not a joke. That was—that was—that was—it was the the South Florida was the the home for all of the Medicare marketing fraud at the time. That's
2: right, and so if you, as you can imagine, the majority of you know these full risk providers in those days. They were mostly built on services. Um, you know, they would you know give you free pastries. They would um, you would go there and smoke cigars and play dominoes. Um, it was basically it had a real club feeling. And if you needed any type of you know uh, uh, you know you had a clinical need, um, you were sick, you had cancer, you had heart disease, um, you rapidly found yourself wanting for something else, and so and you were heavily encouraged to go somewhere else. And so when my dad first started going. Getting into the risk uh, model, uh, he first of all had his you know uh, had the business located in an area that wasn't uh, particularly uh, affluent and then uh, when he went to the health plans in those uh, during the, that period of time, there was this large problem of they didn't know what to do with this a population of patients that was particularly sick right uh, the risk groups didn't want them and so my father uh uh started taking risk. And, and very quickly, he said, wow, why is it that all these patients that are in Medicare Advantage and the risk population are so sick? Uh, it wasn't because they were all sick. It was because those are the ones that that were attributed to him and those were the ones that were come to him. We became known in South Florida as the dumb risk docs that wanted sick patients. Um, in reality, it's not that we wanted them. We just didn't know any better. Uh, my father, who was a... <laughs> He was a very academic uh, doctor, right? He was the number one ranked student in the country of Taiwan, living out of Taiwan, has a master's degree from WashU, followed in by a PhD in biochemistry, and then another, and then an, a medical degree. And so, you know, very academic guy and didn't realize that you could optimize a risk pool by get, getting rid of sick patients. So, when he first started taking care of all these sick patients, he had to develop the clinical model that actually could turn these catastrophic stop loss patients into at least breaking them even or maybe even positive. And so that was the genesis of ChenMed. ChenMed was really an organization or a practice that really focused on really poor folks, but really sick folks, and figuring out ways through a a robust clinical model, and, and we call it concierge medicine on steroids, but through this really intense clinical model that could substantially bring down a risk of a population, particularly the sickest population, and break them even. Now, obviously, you move in about a decade later, uh, just about a decade and a half later. Risk adjustment came into play. As soon as risk adjustment came into play, if you can take catastrophically ill patients in a non-risk adjusted environment and break them even, meaning you don't really make any money, okay, but you're able to break them even, um, and then you have all these risk practices in South Florida trying to get rid of their sick patients and they're dumping patients to you, so you're growing, but you're but you're breaking even. Well, as soon as risk adjustment hit, we became <laughs> we said, what in the world just happened? We were breaking even on the sickest people, um, and then all of a sudden, we were starting to generate profit. How big is ChenMed right now?
1: Just to give people a sense of sort of scale.
2: So, uh, you know, we uh, we launched our second location in 2000 and the late part of 2005. We uh, developed the technology starting 2003 that actually drives the model. And it actually is the platform on which the entire model sits on. It's all the electronic medical record system, the, the analytics, it drives the workflow, all the different apps that all the physicians and the care teams use. That started um, actually in 2003. And we took it outside of Florida to prove that risk models could work outside of Southern California, Southern Texas, and <laughs> in, in, uh, in Southern Florida, right? So we took it outside of there in 2011. And then today, now in 2020, we are in 20 unique cities in the United States. How how much money can you save for a com? I mean, the, a lot of the
1: healthcare system is either about billing for the most expensive patients or avoiding the most expensive patients—folks who are who are from poor neighborhoods and who are have complex comorbid's who have reached the point in their life when they've got more one or one or two or three you know serious chronic diseases. I mean, how do you save money on patients like that?
2: So uh, what we've discovered is as a whole, and I'm just, this is kind of a a really round number. um, You can probably save about 50% of healthcare costs.
1: Hit the the, the pause button there because David's really shocked by that. And he needs to, he he has a hard time doing big math numbers. So
0: 50%, 50%, that's like one out of three, right? Is that,
1: (laughs) I mean, that's, that's, we have a healthcare system, you know, $4 trillion healthcare system where prices do nothing but go up every year. And you're saying you can cut the cost of the most complicated patients. By the way, it's not just about cost. It's also about people's lives. I mean, that's a that's that's a huge lifestyle improvement. So so take that, David. Managed care can work.
0: Well, here's the thing, John. What I heard, because I was just reading the uh, the CareCentrics uh, Trends Report, and it was saying that two out of three consumers skipped or delayed in-person care during the pandemic. So, I mean, how do you take care of them at ChenMed if they're Skipping their visits.
1: Yeah, you know, how did you navigate? The, how do you navigate the COVID, you know, that that COVID clampdown and because and, you're you're very connected to your patients in your clinic model? How did you navigate that with patients avoiding care?
2: So prior to COVID, um, we were seeing our patients once a month. Our model is a very intense preventative model, right? And so one of the ways that we bring down costs so dramatically is we go after hospitalization rates. Okay. We target a 50% reduction in hospitalizations versus our geographically matched ba- benchmarks. What we you, when you reduce hospitalization rates by 50%, you also reduce the, um, as a tag-along, you reduce uh, professional fees, what we call Medicare Part B costs, by 25 to 40% just by reducing the hospitalization rate. Because not only do you save money on the hospitalization that's preventable, but then there's doctors that go into the hospital that see those patients, which you don't incur that cost. And then there's a whole slew of um, of costs that come after the admission, which is you know post-acute and the follow-up that occurs, and then the discoordination that occurs afterwards. That has a tremendous uh, cost as well. And so that that is probably a grand majority of our cost savings. And then of course there's the usual. Um, cost savings that you can go after just by filing good evidence-based medicine and trying to reduce variability that then brings it down to that 50% um, barrier. So here's what happened in COVID. Um, so our organization, uh, you, know, we are, you know, we haven't really taken external money. We're not, um, you know, we, we don't have any, you know, PE or venture capital investors. And so we've been able to deeply invest in tech. And we've been doing so since 2003, as I mentioned. So the entire organization sits on a pretty robust uh, tech platform. We like to think that we're probably 10 times more uh, tech-oriented than probably um, any primary care group in the country. Um, there's a lot of risk groups in the, company, in the country, um, really excited about the results um, that they were able to produce. But um, we think that they are going to be really limited by their ability to invest in tech. Um, because of the typical horizon for venture capital or, or private equity environment, you know, so tech,
1: tech, tech tech is always an area of overpromise and in Health, right. I mean, just to be honest, I mean, we we've seen it whether it's the EHR or interoperability. Why do you? What is it about your tech you think it, it, it empowers your clinicians and your non non clinicians in terms of their care? Like, what do you got that others don't have?
2: So, as you, as you look at this, right, all the existing EHR systems that are out there. Um, You know, they are, uh, especially now with all this consolidation, they're really good at um, producing for their customer. And so if you look at who is the customer of the EHR and what are they trying to accomplish, if you're trying to go to your board and you're saying, hey, board, I want to spend, I don't know, half a billion dollars on this amazing EHR system, that EHR system has to produce an ROI right? Otherwise, there's not a board that's going to say, yeah, let's just do it for the the fun of it, right? And so these EHR systems are spectacular. They're spectacular at helping um, large healthcare providers achieve their goals. And one of their largest goals that will justify the investment for the EHR is being able to drive revenue in a fee-for-service environment. So you have beautifully crafted, Revenue-generating technology that actually drives a workflow to actually optimize the revenue in a given organization, okay? Now, if you're running a risk group, the last thing that you would want to do is to implement a piece of technology that does nothing but drives volume and revenue, right? That, that is perfected in every possible way to drive, that, to drive that revenue. In fact, you have very different goals, right? And so, and those goals then translate to very different um, uh, workflows. So we had to develop our own entire EHR system that drives the workflows and the incentives of a risk provider, which is primarily focused on on prevention, customer service, right, or patient service, um, and lowering costs. Now, you, now you marry that with another data set that everybody's trying to figure out how to deal with. So the insurance companies, they have all this claims data. It's just such powerful data, right? Optum has it, right? Just huge, huge amounts of data. They get it from United and from other payers as well. Every payer has enormous amounts of data. And so if you're really trying to optimize um, the risk of a population, you need access to that claims data. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times people will, uh, you know, plans will try and help provider organizations move along the, you know, their evolutionary continuum towards value and towards risk. And so they'll give them that that data. And so what ends up happening is a doctor walks into a room and says, here, here's what I need. Or even an administrator walks in a room and says, I have all my EHR data. I have all my clinical data. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my patient. But that that workflow is really about driving fee for service. And then they say, "Hold on," and you got to break out of that piece of technology. Go to this complex analytics system that chews up all of your claims data, and you're trying to get insights out of your claims data and try to figure out, first of all, how do I interpret that as a physician? But so, so maybe walk through a
1: specific example of like you're you're, you're in front of a patient, you know, uh, unmanaged diabetes, you know, some some heart disease risk. they they're seventy years old. What are, you, what are your clinicians seeing through their, through their system that others wouldn't? Because I, I agree with you. Most EHRs are all based on documentation and billing. It's to document the activity and then re-document the activity to set up a bill. But, but, but it's integrated into your system that you built, is integrated into what a, a physician does. Tell me what that feels like or what, what, what the doctor sees and, and, and is queued up for that patient in that, in that moment of truth.
2: So first of all, our systems are built on what we're we're trying to maximize within our EHR system, um, coordination, right? So, and and the second thing is really about prevention. And then what we're able to do, what's unique about our EHR system, like that diabetic patient, is we, because we're a global full risk, we take that, that data set of all that claims data, okay? All that information that we get from health plans, because we're running global full risk, we've offloaded risk from those plans, and we chew it up in such a way that we get the right information out of that claims data. Okay. Then what we do is now when once that all that right information is out of that claims data, we have to present it in such a way that way physicians and caregivers can react to that data. Okay. And then you have to take that data and put it into the workflow at the right place, at the right time. So that way when decisions are being made, you can make the right decision. So let's let's make that real. So you're a doctor. You're seeing a patient who's sitting in front of you. That patient uh, just walked out of the hospital with a heart attack. Very common in our patient population. Okay. Uh, The studies have shown that a, a patient leaves the hospital on average after a heart attack on 11 medications. Just that's a shocking number. All right. So you can imagine why is it 11? Because they saw a ton of specialists and they all just kept adding to the list. All right. They just kept adding to the list and those doctors don't talk to each other. All right, In general. And so now the patient's sitting in front of you and you go, what are you on? And the patient goes, uh, honestly, I'm not even sure. OK, our studies have shown that between what the EHR says and what the claims data says or what the patient thinks they're taking can be discordant. Fifty percent. Your so-called health record lies 50 percent of the time. Uh, it, by the way, that number used to be like 70 or 80 percent of the time.
1: No, I, I, Chris. You know, at CareCentrics, in our in our in our in our readmissions program, we have a seventy percent reduction in in prescription drug use. We just 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 by cleaning up what people are on. Seventy percent reduction. I mean, you, you,
2: you're exactly right. So you need to clean up, right? So so you got to clean all that up. But imagine now you're a, you get a view of the patient, and you're looking at that patient. and You're going okay. How many times has that patient been admitted? All right. Where are their admissions? Because we have all the claims data, right? What doctors are they seeing? outside of our clinics, we get that data as well. Um, who's billed for services? What doctors are they following up with? Who do we need to coordinate with? How much money do they have, they spent on their, on their medications? Because are they at risk of falling into the donut hole? Because as soon as they fall into the donut hole, they stop spending money on medications and their diabetes goes out of whack, okay? So all of that unnecessary information needs to go in and a doctor needs to make those decisions and say, who are the specialists on board? How do I coordinate the care? How much is the total you know, total cost of the patient? And by the way, how much is the total cost of the system, which is us? You've made some incredible points here about love,
1: compassion systems, and some of the things that are breaking down in uh, the healthcare system, but also given us a lot of reasons for optimism that th- that models exist out there to kind of uh, not just save money, but um, really lift people up. And, and uh, so thanks for joining us today. Well, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk.
0: I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group.
1: And I'm John Driscoll, CEO of CareCentrics. Thanks, Chris.